All right, let's uh, let's have a sip of this Glacier Mist brand spring water. Welcome back to Check This Please, a podcast where we're rereading the webcomic Check Please to revisit it and re-examine our feelings about it and then pass judgments as we are wont to do. Today, we are going to be discussing the blog posts related to the parse arc at the end of semester one of year two. So the three blog posts associated with 2.7, 2.8, and 2.9 parse one through three. I'm Secret OMG, and who is with me today? Hi, I'm Tomato, and I have a big update. I got a new kind of seltzer. Cucumber mint. Very exciting. Oh, I don't know about that. Well, I'm not going to repurchase it, but it was a grand experiment. Okay, okay. Well, I'm drinking this delightful bottle of water that was in the uh, second refrigerator in the laundry room, because I was in there, you know, folding laundry. And I was like, oh, I'm kind of thirsty. And I opened the fridge and there was a bottle of water. What a luxury. Speaking of wetness, let's talk about Ken Parsons. So today we're looking at the blog posts, as Secret said, for Parses, parses 1 through 3, whatever. You know, those, those things that we talked about. So I think it's worth maybe just briefly addressing what we intend to do here and why we thought it was important to break these blog posts out. I think that what we'll see when we sort of go point by point through the information about Parse given in these blog posts is that what is said about Parse in the blog posts for these three strips do nearly as much to build him up as a character and create a sense of presence around him as do the strips themselves. Or at the very least, they are sort of like enmeshed and like complementary. So I think it's hard to understand what the expectations for Kent Parson within the text of Check Please were without looking at the blog posts and what was being said about him therein at the time when these strips were being created. I also think just sort of like looking back at this outline, something that's really interesting is that we didn't really get into like wink about him or like discourse around him in the fandom drama sense really at all. So I think questions of why is he controversial and why does he get written out of the comic? I think those are even further a separate issue from the larger meaning of this character to the text itself, if that makes sense. Maybe at the end of this discussion, we can revisit that. And again, maybe like at some other point, we can go back and sort of talk about what the actual controversy is. But I think that the meaning of Kent Parson is one topic. The sort of textual role of Kent Parson, either as we expect it would have been 
based on what's laid out in these comics or what it ends up being is a second issue. And then the issue of why were the decisions that were made around this character made and why did people get so unhappy about this and what was the shape and texture of those arguments, that is its own third issue. And obviously these things are interlocked. It would be very difficult to entirely separate them. They kind of inform each other and lean on each other. Nevertheless, I think they're sort of like three different conversations. So I think we're primarily here touching on the first two. And then, yeah, I was just surprised and kind of like thinking about this outline that we didn't really break open the third thing at all. So maybe that's a conversation that we'll have to have some other time in and of itself. I want to start by thinking about the question, who or what is Kent Parson? Secret and I both have different ways that we can approach this character. So I'm going to start by talking a little bit about a couple ways to look at him, which are based in everyone's favorite slash least favorite philosopher, Jacques Derrida. So just in case you forgot about Derrida from the last time I brought him up, he is handsome. I'll die on this hill. That's the thing that I care about him. He has one picture where he's blue stealing it at the camera, and it's the only thing I care about in philosophy. So thank you. That's why I bring him up all the time. Of course, no other reason. He's a deconstructionist, so he looks at the structure of language, how words relate to each other, and how they don't relate to each other. And he tries to kind of understand how words undermine their own meaning. I'm not going to get more into the technical process of it because you can go read Derrida if you want to get into his whole deal. But I think it's really interesting to use it to think about check please because one of the things that we've kind of found out over the course of making this podcast is that check please is constantly undermining itself. Like all of its stated values, intentions, and desires, and meanings are just completely at odds with what the comic tends to actually say. So I think it's a useful way of looking at this text. Like deconstructing the text is kind of important in this sense for that reason. So one way to look at Kent Parson is to look at him as a ghost, or if we're going into lit theory just a little bit, or philosophy just a little bit, as a hauntological figure. We can also kind of track his path through the text as a trace. I'm really sorry I'm like this. Thanks for coming with me on this journey. So hauntology is this combination of the terms haunting and ontology, because in French, ontologie and ontologie sound exactly the same. It's essentially this concept of pieces of the past consistently repeating or bursting into the present, and this concept as a way of organizing thought or reality. So it's this way of organizing an understanding of the world of a text through this like repeated motif of the past, essentially. I'm also not a scholar of Derrida, so like take me with a grain of salt, but by trace, you have to think a little bit about this concept of something called différence. Don't worry about it, it doesn't matter. But essentially like in order to describe what something is, you have to know what it isn't. Things are sort of defined by what they aren't. And when we try to use words, often what we end up doing is creating space between what we mean and what we're trying to get at. So when I say the word justice, it's really, really hard to describe all of the things that justice could be. So there's kind of a gap between that word and the actual signified meaning of it. This is not interesting to everybody, so I'm going to move right along. One thing that you can kind of think about as the trace which is kind of what I'm going to use to talk about Ken Parson, is that the trace is talking about that gap. So 
one might call it the absence of presence if you were writing a paper, but you could also just think about it as a shape that should be filled with meaning, but it isn't. Paris is a haunting on more than one level, as we've discussed a little bit in the past. He is a piece or a representation of Jack's past, right? Which we don't know and can't know, and the text does not offer us. We're just kind of given like a few pieces of information kind of surrounding a negative space of the past. And so Paris as a piece or representation of that past keeps popping up to haunt Jack's present relationships with his friends and with Biddy. It happens literally in Paris 1 through 3. We see that with the flashbacks, the rumors about the rumors, and then Paris himself arriving all the way to 419 when Paris interacts with Biddy and actually Jack is nowhere to be found. His eventual absence from the comic, this is the, the second way he acts as a, as a haunting, kind of haunts the readers. Like, you might call this a present absence or an absent presence if you were also, you know, again, writing an academic paper. So even when Kent Person is present, he's himself almost a negative space. He represents all these things we don't know and haven't heard said and can't say ourselves. And then eventually his absence becomes really, really conspicuous because of the reasons we've talked about, right? He's introduced in this really big explosive way. He's obviously really important to the text. He's pointed out as important in the paratexts. And metatextually, it's obvious just from the way narratives work that he should be important. And then by the time he stops being important, there's an aura of where he should be. So our expectations get unfulfilled over and over again in a way that makes him present, even when he's not present. And that's kind of what I mean by present absence. The places where he should be, or the places where he is, but also isn't, like 419, which I think we can all agree is like a bizarre, well, I, well, maybe you haven't read it. We'll get to it when we are in year four. But there's a particular way in which Ken Parson is both present and not present in that strip. These places are kind of marked by like what should be there and what isn't there. And the difference between the Kent we think should be there and the Kent who is actually portrayed. That's a very long explanation for why Ken Parson is a ghost, because he's haunting this comic. He haunts our experiences as readers, at least some readers, obviously some readers don't care about him, and he haunts the text. He pops up, his presence throws the rest of everyone else's experience into a certain kind of relief, and then he leaves again without having his own central arc, so he acts as a ghost in the text. As for what's in these blog posts, we're basically just going to go through point by point. We have separated out basically what is pertinent to Kent Parson in the posts. So like there's other stuff, there's other material in those blog posts. We're really going to concentrate on like Kent Parson related stuff. Like, I don't know, it's like a couple of them or at least one of them are in the format of like Q&A with Ngozi. You know, she like solicited asks and people are like, what's your process? Or I don't know, other shit. And we're really just going to stick to like Ken Parson material. Yeah, exactly. And I definitely think that we should address the sort of controversial nature of Parse but that topic feels so big to me and not only about the character, but it's also such a conversation about fandom that it feels important to kind of lay ground about how Parse is not only acting in the text, but kind of like acting in the setup of the character in these posts before we get into all the ways that it didn't work or all the ways that it went awry or whatever. And I also just briefly want to link. So thank you all for bearing with me in my like exploration of Derrida. I think that these texts and the setup of Ken in them are important parts of why he becomes a ghost, like why he becomes a haunting. 
as Secret kind of points out. So this adds to the kind of sense of mystery and negative space that Kent comes to represent. As we discussed in part three, he's a cipher, right? Like these are part of what makes him exciting and part of what makes him unknowable. So starting off with the, the parse one blog post, one of the asks that Ngozi got is, what is something you really want to talk about via all the characters? Because, not gonna lie, I love them all, and I'm constantly interested in facts and stories about them all. And then in caps, Ngozi says, Parson Jack's backstory! Asterix shakes you by the shoulders. Asterix. You don't understand! Parson Zim, Zim's and Parse, the pre-ancienanigans. So this never shows up in canon, which is a tragedy. And I think very clearly implies that we were supposed to find out at least a little bit about the pre-ancienanigans, maybe? Not sure. This will be a running theme. Well, again, this is like bordering on conspiratorial or like vaguely hearsay-ish. But I think we've mentioned before that around, uh, I don't know, late 2015, early 2016, Ngozi was doing public live streams that a couple of bloggers went to. And while she was drawing, she was answering questions about the characters and like sharing backstory and sharing her decision-making process. And a couple of these bloggers who were at the live stream wrote, posts where they recapped all of the little like bits and pieces and details of what was being said. And I believe in one of those posts, there is an assertion that the plan for year three was to incorporate the time Jack spent in the queue, like specifically flashbacks to it which would imply that something along these lines was going to be part of the story. And like, it's kind of problematic to like lean on like one conversation that one person took notes on at this point four to five years ago and say, well, this was the plan. This is what this means. But this has kind of like seeped into, I think, my understanding of Kent Parson was maybe supposed to have a bigger role in the comic. So these things work together. Well, we've discussed this before, but the ephemeral nature of the way that little drips and drabs of information kind of like dribble out about this guy are, are part of what builds up the mystique around him. I remember that as well, but people who came into the fandom at a different time or might not have seen that just don't and their experience is different as a result. Well, and like, here's the thing. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll do year three, and we'll, we'll hear about and think about year three, but like, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because if the story of year three was going to be about like Jack acclimating to the NHL and figuring out how to succeed in the NHL, and if Parse was supposed to be like a bigger antagonist, then seeing a lot of this backstory play out in flashback form would have been like an interesting storytelling choice. Having said that, when the year two Kickstarter was going on, I purchased a book plate commission. 
and the book plate commission was done by prompt. So I don't know, you had like a hundred characters or something. I don't remember how long, but you had basically like a limited amount of space to make a prompt. And the prompt that I made for my book plate was Parson Jack's backstory shakes you by the shoulders. You don't understand. Parson Zim, Zim's and Parts, the pre-ink shenanigans. Like I copied and pasted that and put it in the prompt box. And the book plate I got, I guess we can link to it, is basically an image of Jack and Parse in the queue. They're both wearing hoodies and Jack is holding like a shopping bag and Parse is saying like, I can't believe you're chickening out from dyeing your hair. And Jack is like, yeah, I'm just not into it. I could really, I don't know. I like, I'd spent so long sort of like imagining like what kind of shenanigans were these? And the illustration I got, like, I love it. I think it's really cool. And I will say that it's certainly a drawing that you can really see the hand of the artist in. And it's, it's really neat. Like, I'm really glad I have it. I'm really glad I like got this artwork effectively. But it's kind of underwhelming from the sense of like this, this like sheer sense of enthusiasm that like came through in this blog post that I think a lot of people have latched onto. The idea that like ultimately this story that she was so excited to tell about these two characters was like Jack didn't dye his hair, which is an interesting character detail. Like, yeah, I, I mean, that, that sounds about right. Like, you know, junior hockey players are constantly doing dumb shit like to their hair. And Jack is the kind of guy who probably would just like not, not be able to follow through on it. So like makes sense on a character level, like makes perfect sense, totally believe it. But yeah, tonally or like whatever, it doesn't really fit with like what I was expecting when I made that prompt. So I wonder if we all kind of like misinterpreted that what happened in the backstory was supposed to be like sexy and exciting, or if this is an instance of like the author changing her view of the characters at some point in between writing this blog post and like, you know, nearly two years later or actually two years later when I like actually made this prompt. I feel like I've talked about basically like a $200 book plate commission that I bought way too much. No, I think it's useful. Those two years were really some two years in terms of the comics timeline, right? Because by then we were in year three, right? Yeah, we were in like the, the spring of year three. The comic was vastly different then than it was in the spring of year two, like vastly different. So I don't know whether Ngozi had changed her mind. I obviously don't know her, so I'm not sure how she sort of like navigated that, but it seems likely to me that either she did change her mind because of like everything going on in the fandom or she just got tired of telling that particular story and decided to tell a different story in the interim. I don't know if the shenanigans were supposed to be like, were they always supposed to be kind of like dumb teen shit plus makeouts? 
or I don't know, you know, I think that's one of the questions that we just can never answer. And that's part of why there's so much fic about that period. And then I think the other thing that's kind of interesting about this particular entry is that the asker, Custard Custard, doesn't actually say anything about Parse and Jack. And in fact, it's like being answered in the Parse one blog. So this is around the time or maybe before that he's even introduced that this is getting asked. So it's not like the asker Custard Custard is prompting Ngozi to talk about Parson Jack. It's like her organic response to what are you really excited about and really want to talk about is, oh, I really wish I could talk about Parson Jack. I wish I could talk about their backstory. So I think the fact that like, without being prompted, that's what she goes to, is part of how people started to get the sense that like, oh, I should be excited about this character and questions about the backstory he has with Jack because the creator is really excited about him, like shakes you by the shoulders. You don't understand. <laughs> we ultimately just like don't really get any of this. And the one comment we kind of get about it after this in the comic is that they hooked up a couple times and Jack wasn't really into it, so he says, which is kind of off kilter with what's here. Yes, but we'll talk more about that when we get there, I guess. Oh, I predict that's the comic I'm going to talk about, like, more than any other comic. I reread it today while looking for that conversation, and I was like, oh my god, oh my god, year three is going to be a shit show. Anyway, but we're not in year three. We're still in year two. I just like the fact that Ngozi says her favorite part of Parsa's character design is the little cowlick that jauntily defies gravity in every and all situations, particularly the fact that Parse hates it. I don't have much to add about it, but I think it's like a fun character detail that he's not into the most iconic part of his look. Are you familiar with the concept of like id in a fanfic sense? Yes. Or like the concept of like tells? Yes. Maybe you should define them for people who aren't familiar. I'm not going to give you like a Freudian definition, but in fanfic context, people say that things are like iddy. I-D-D-Y, when they're playing to somebody's id, that is their like basest, most primal desires. And usually those things are understood to be like kinks or some sort of like particular feature of character types or dynamics that you're super invested in. Tells are a kind of similar concept that, I don't know if this is like a fandom universal thing, but back on the old uh, South Park kink meme, this was like a relatively small fandom. And so very plainly, a handful of people were contributing fills. And a friend of mine used to say that she basically knew which fills I had written because of certain tells. Like, I think one of the things she said was like a giveaway that I had written a fill was that I always used the word behind. 
to refer to a character's butt. Well, that's, yeah, you know, just getting to know me on this podcast. So the reason I bring this up, the reason I mention it at all, is because I think cowlicks are like an itty thing for Ngozi, or maybe they're like a tell or something. Because Biddy has them too, and she's really into or has several times drawn the idea that Jack is also really into these two characters' cowlicks. Like, later in this episode, we'll mention, like, the little bit about Jack smoothing down Kent's cowlicks. And then there's, I don't know, she's drawn, like, art of of Jack, like, kissing Biddy's cowlicks? This is neither here nor there, but I definitely think it's somewhere. I never noticed that. I also have a cowlick, which is very annoying to me when I have short hair. So I think my annoyance with how having a cowlick is annoying, that's redundant, blocked me from noticing this, com- this obvious itty situation happening. I don't know why I needed to share my cowlick problem, but it hurts when you comb your hair the wrong way. It's horrible. Anyway, the end. Thank you. I've never, I've never noticed you having a cowlick. Like a little patch of hair where instead of going this, this circle around your head, it goes the other way. Huh. Oh, all right. Anyway, that's enough about my scalp. Who is he? Jack's ex-teammate and his first best friend. As we will find out, he plays for the Las Vegas Aces, where he just kind of gets points like Biddy Bakes Pies, which I find amusing since he's basically 5'10 and 175-ish pounds, which is incredibly small for an NHL player. So the average height of an NHL player is like 6 or 6'1", and the average weight is 200 pounds. And the two notes that I would make about this are that these are averages. So that doesn't mean that like everybody in the NHL is at minimum six feet. It means that the combined height of all the players divided by the number of them equals six feet. So by definition, some players are going to be shorter than that. And then there's also the fact that This doesn't necessarily add up. Par seems fairly well-muscled, so I feel like it's possible that she's kind of, like, underestimating maybe, like, what his weight would be. And I would maybe compare this also to Biddy, who, like, is 5'7", and his weight is stated to be, like, 125 or something. So it's like he's underweighted for what you would expect his build to be like as a hockey player. So I wonder if this is kind of like a consistent sort of like fiction for, again, I guess I'd call it like itty purposes. And the question I would ask is like, why does Kent Parson need to be small? Like, what does that do? Or like, what does that add to the story? Like, I understand when it comes to Biddy, but, like, why does Kent Parson have to be, like, incredibly small for an NHL player, quote-unquote? Well, I think it does a couple things. A, I think it's a fan fiction staple slash romance staple slash itty staple that you have a tall, dark-haired person and a shorter, blonde person who's 
more slight, that's like pretty standard. So I think it definitely plays to that trope and makes it easier to read between the lines in regards to their past relationship because it's an expected pattern. I think it very deliberately places him in conversation with Biddy, like as character designs and as characters. That's part of why it's easy to see them as foils of each other is because they have similarities physically. And also it gives Jack like a particular set of interests in like his romantic partners, I think too, that you can read into. And if there were going to be a greater story about Kent in the NHL, about Kent and Jack, about their history, particularly one that like pushes at or thinks about the things that Jack had to make his life easier and the things that didn't make his life easier. Thinking about Kent Parson making it despite the unlikelihood, is that a word? I don't know, but based on his sort of physical attributes would have pushed Jack's, I don't know what to call it, his hockey privileges basically uh, further into relief. We've talked about Jack as this like, quote, typically masculine dude, right? And I think that the difference between them serves to kind of highlight the things that Jack may have access to that he doesn't really like connect with or think about. I also think if you were trying to build a story that had a complicated narrative about like what queerness looks like and how different people inhabit bodies in different ways, like again, the differences between Biddy and Kent could have been used in an interesting way. We didn't get that, but that's what I see. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that is on point. I think it's interesting because 5'10 is average height for a man. Like, that is a, that's, it's not short. It's, it's not, like, especially tall, but if you ran into Kent Parson on the street with, like, these dimensions, you would by no means think of him as, like, a small person. He's very normative sounding for, like, a guy. It's, also the case that his physical presence in the story kind of doesn't really have anything to do with his size. Whereas Jack's often does and Biddy's often does. Kent maybe just isn't present enough for this to really come through fully. It feels to me like he fits into scenes, like he fits into groups of people in a fairly naturalistic way. He doesn't strike me as, like, small or, like, awkwardly large or anything like that. Yeah, I wonder whether maybe that's not to give too much credit to Check, Please, which I would never do. I only give it the credit that it's due, of course. But I wonder if that could be seen as a commentary on Parse's ability to move in and out of different worlds as opposed to Jack's inability to move in and out of different worlds and even Biddy's inability. Like, Biddy moves more easily outside the hockey rink Jack Morris moves more easily inside the hockey rink, and Kent is actually able to kind of traverse both spaces much more easily than either of them. That would be an interesting thesis, wouldn't it? Unfortunately, the comic never examines it. Yeah. Well, let's look at Parse's watch? Question mark? Question mark? Costs more than your laptop. If there's one thing I regret about this update, it's that I didn't make that thing shinier. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. A laptop is usually good for what, like, three to five years, maybe like seven years if you really, like, juice every last ounce of life out of it. A good wristwatch lasts lifetimes, plural. I mean, obviously it's a luxury item, but 
watches are forever, you know, if they're well-maintained. The only comment I have to add is that I belong to a trade union. And when I went to a regional meeting last year, back in before the pandemic, when we met places with people in life, one of our vice presidents was from the Vegas region. And he had the sparkliest watch I've seen on a man as he strode up and down in front of us. Sparkly how? either fake or real diamonds in the watch face. And then the silver was just like super shiny. So when he moved his wrist, the sun out of the window would catch on it. I had, I had not seen a man's watch like that before. So I was like, huh. I don't imagine that Parse's watch has diamonds in it. I think it's just supposed to be like a really high quality, like men's stainless steel wristwatch. Oh, I don't think it had diamonds in either. I just thought it was funny that this man from Vegas had a very shiny watch. And I was like, yeah, it seems like the Vegas style. If anybody ever wants to buy me something just like really nice, the two items that I'm like really hoping somebody else will buy me one day are a really nice wristwatch and a really nice fountain pen. So that's what you need to know about me. I also like those items, although I think I have less specific opinions about them than you might. Oh my god, I have so many opinions about fountain pens. You know, let's move on. Zims? Uh, (laughs) Parse is the only person who calls Jack that nickname. I wonder if Jack calls Parse anything special? Hmm. Okay. Did you miss me? We'll see if Jack does. Yeah, like, I argue that we actually don't really get anything definitive, really. You get the sense that they're talking for a while and they're making out for a while, which does kind of imply that maybe Jack missed him a little. Also the sort of, like, I miss you, you always say that implies that there's a little more tension than just Jack doesn't miss him and is angry that he showed up. Like, I think it's more complicated than just like, oh, he doesn't miss Paris, actually. I think maybe it's the sort of thing where when he's just living his life, he's not thinking about Paris very much. But then, you know, once Paris shows up and they start interacting, maybe he kind of remembers what he misses about Pars. Yeah, I also think that. And I think the fact that this question comes on the tail of all of these other questions about Pars, particularly Zim's, and then I wonder if Jack calls Pars anything special. Like, I think that there is this pressure on that last question, if Jack misses Pars. And I think that the paratextual pressure on that colors the way that I at least read the following strips. It's hard for me to separate the call and response that Ngozi does almost always has an implied answer. And I think here the implied answer is like not no, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and like that's where I would land. But then I think the rest of the comic kind of colors that regardless of what was intended when this was being written. And I also think a lot of readers of this comic would presume that the answer is just no. Like, uniformly, no, Jack doesn't. Yeah, and that's a perfectly fine way to read the comic. It's just not one that I find convincing. So we're going to kind of go into the Parse 2 blog, and I will tell you what I thought when I saw it, which is 
Jesus Christ, we got to talk about the whole thing. So I literally just copy pasted the whole thing into our outline. It's pretty short. Don't worry. I want to start with the comic at the top where Parse is posing with a couple different members of Sam Wallman's hockey. So I don't want to get too into the deep controversy of Kent Parson, but I think it's unlikely if we were intended to understand Parse as like a complete asshole within the first couple of comics in which he was introduced. I think it's unlikely that we would have gotten these very, I don't know, like pathos evoking. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that's the wrong word. But I don't think we would have gotten this series of fun snapshots where he is taking selfies with Ransom, Holster, Lardo, Nursey, and Chowder. Um, And they're kind of cute and fun. Like he's smiling with Holster and Ransom. They look really excited. Um, He and Lardo as the flip cup champions are wearing those like shitty glasses with the shutters across them. I never I think they're just called like shutter shaves. Yeah, they're wearing shitty shutter shades, you know. Then there's like a funny picture with Chowder accidentally smacking Kent in the face. All of these things are designed to make us feel sympathetic towards him. I don't think if we were intended to read him as an asshole that we would have gotten these snapshots, personally. No, I mean, when you see somebody getting along and having fun with and being liked by the cast of characters that you trust and are sympathetic toward, you naturally sort of experience this transference of like, oh, these people like this guy, I like those people, ergo, I like this guy also. It's pretty obviously demonstrating that he's like friendly and charismatic and like can have a good time with people and like is nice. And in fact, in a sort of complimentary photo, Biddy tweets a picture of himself with Kent Parson and then follows it up with, he's so nice. And the thing is, I highly doubt that these are like deep seated, really intimate friendships, but just being friendly and getting along with people is is its own sort of quality. And I agree that if he were being constructed as either a villain or a really awful person who the reader was supposed to uniformly reject, that he would be constructed like this at all. At least without some kind of very heavy, I don't know, foreshadowing or implication that actually there's something sinister happening. Yeah, yeah. And I I do think that it's possible to tell a story where someone is like likable and actually is like secretly horrible, but that is not the kind of story that this comic seems to tell. So it seems unlikely that we wouldn't have gotten some kind of indication of how we're supposed to read him as we've gotten an indication about how we're supposed to read every moment of the comic, you know, thus far. So there were the 34 days in the summer of 2009 between winning the Memorial Cup and the NHL entry draft in Montreal where things were perfect. Who wouldn't want that back? But that was a very long time ago. As we've discussed in the past, these three sentences have spawned an entire genre of Check, Please fanfic. They were hugely influential. And these 34 days, like, loom large in the Check, Please imaginary, you know? Yeah, and it's really interesting because if what happens at the end of the 34 days is Jack tries to kill himself, you do sort of wonder what was going on. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems to at least give the impression that they weren't as perfect as they felt. The who wouldn't want that back is tied to Kent as a result. Although there's actually no specific perspective given in these few sentences, and maybe Jack wants it back too, but probably not, I would guess. But maybe also it's complicated. Well, my pet theory, which is largely speculation, is that if we accept that Jack was intentionally attempting to kill himself via overdose and had effectively, like, premeditated this, it's possible that those were a really good 34 days for him because sometimes people who are effectively planning to kill themselves and have like settled on that sometimes feel like a sense of relief or like a sense of sort of like oh okay like I've made this decision now I can sort of like settle things before I do this. That's definitely true. It's like a documented thing. It's real. Like, I'm not I'm not making that up. I guess I, I haven't usually read about it as being as long as a month, but I don't see why it couldn't be. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. Again, all of this is, like, none of this is in the text. This is also me kind of, like, theorizing about how to reconcile the contrast between 34 perfect days, but then also this like gross traumatic thing that happens at the end of it at the same time yeah i i don't know i mean we just don't know anything about this period like this is what we know pretty much i think also you know now that i'm thinking about it and thinking about the idea of like the specter and haunting and and so on and so forth like memory especially if it's ended in something traumatic the memory of something good previous to that traumatic thing can feel really heightened as a result sometimes or the things that weren't good about it get papered over you know as you you're you're sort of like remembering what was perfect about it and so I wonder actually if these 34 perfect days aren't talking about like how those days exist in memory rather than how they existed in actuality which I never thought about before for some reason oh yeah well I mean um this is part of what I wanted to talk about is Yeah, I mean, oftentimes when you look back at something and you're no longer actually living through it, what you're remembering is not like a photorealistic, journalistic impression of what literally was happening and what you were feeling at all times. It's kind of like a sum of the overall sensibility or something like that. So it's like, I had a lot of unhappy things that happened to me in college. And if you asked me to like recount some of those specific things, a lot of them were pretty bad. But then overall, if you asked me if my college experience was good or bad, I'd probably say good. And like overall, it was a pretty positive four years. Even though like... Yeah, a lot of it actually really sucked, but it's it, it's not even that I'm, like, misremembering necessarily. It's just that, like, the function of memory as sort of, like, a cumulative process is that you come away with, like, an overall sense of, like, what the kind of, like, summation of that time was 
and that ends up reducing it to a very basic kind of feeling. I think this sentiment about the 34 days is really interesting to dig into because it substantiates this idea that keeps coming back in conversations about Pars. Namely, that he is fixated on something very brief that happened long enough ago that he should just be over it and that he shouldn't want it back. And the conversation or the talking point that comes up over and over again about Kent Parson is that this happened so long ago that there's something wrong with him that he's fixated on it or it's bad of him to want it back because by default it happened six years ago so he shouldn't want it back or something like that i've heard ngozi make this point in in various fora like beyond this blog post so that at least i think is consistent but like for one thing that's not how humans work People's emotions aren't on a set timeline of when you just automatically stop giving a shit or when you should stop giving a shit about something. Things happened in people's lives in general 6, 16, 60 years ago, and they can still be impacting you. So it's just stupid to imply that because this was X number of years ago, it is silly to romanticize it or silly to want to recapture it. It's also kind of like, from a certain perspective, like an insidious concept because it kind of absolves Jack of having to like deal with it. Like, oh, it's long ago enough that like Jack shouldn't have to engage with this period. Like it's in the past, he's now in the present. What happened in the past is like not relevant to his present. And I think that's kind of a consistent thing like throughout the comic. And in general, I think it kind of contributes to a culture where it's considered like immature to want to find meaning in your own past. And I guess to your point about nostalgia, like there is a discourse around nostalgia as kind of like a negative thing. And obviously like a lot of discourse at least in the U.S. recently, has been about, you know, conservatism using nostalgia as essentially a dog whistle to get back to a point when certain, like, toxic elements had more control in society. That this mythic past when things were better. Like, I don't know, the sort of debate around, like, the Confederacy or, like, the, you know, what the South used to be or whatever is, is like, a perfect encapsulation of, like, how nostalgia can be a toxic concept. I guess I have a couple responses to this. One is that I feel like six years ago is not that long ago in, in a lot of senses. It's not like yearning for like a distant mythical past, even if like this has been mythologized like by Kent Parson or whatever. It's something that happened like relatively recently in these people's lives. Six years is less time than it took to complete the whole comic. But it also depends on how you look at it. Like the way that time passes is really like contextual and, and really relative. So once you kind of get past childhood, you can live for six years and still be in the same phase of your life. 
And so what happened six years ago maybe doesn't feel that distant because yes, it was six years ago, but like, you know, what's the difference between like 2014 and 2020 to me? I don't know, in some ways a lot, but in some ways really not that much. Yeah, well, I completely agree. And I I also think that there is a certain kind of curious thing here where when you look at it from Jack's perspective, right? Jack ODs, he goes to rehab, he coaches hockey, he goes to Sandwell. He gets to have this series of coming of age experiences, essentially. Yes, maybe not on a quote unquote traditional timeline for either college or for his hockey career, but he gets to have this kind of like growing up period, I guess, this young adulthood post-adolescence, pre-having to enter the world that college serves for a lot of people. Ken Parson doesn't really get that. You know, he's 18, he gets drafted, he immediately becomes a hockey superstar, and he gets rocketed to captaincy. So he's like a wage-earning adult at 18. And so, of course, that is its own kind of of coming-of-age experience, but he doesn't get this kind of protracted series of life growth moments that are built into experiences like college that maybe Jack had. So when you think about something like, yeah, six years as an adult, at least in my experience, same with me, 2014 and 2020 for me are in some circumstances quite, quite different. And in some ways I'm very different, but in other ways, like not so different. And I think because of Kent's kind of like immediate adulthood, essentially, six years might feel shorter to him than it would to Jack, who's gone through like several different phases in the same amount of time. So I also think there's like a, not exactly a nuanced understanding of their different life circumstances. And then furthermore, speaking about nostalgia as a poison, et cetera, this is a common refrain, yes. And I think it's true in a lot of ways, but also like sometimes thinking about the past is fine, especially your personal past, especially when you're trying to understand who you are now because of your, like how you've been impacted by the past. And I would actually argue that Jack's approach of like cutting off the past as though it didn't exist isn't actually a great one all the time and is kind of like part of the weird bootstrap mentality slash masculinity thing he's got going on. Like I, I actually don't think it's the best way of moving through your life. But anyway, he's a fictional character, so it doesn't matter. He ends up happy. But I I do also just want to point out that the take that like looking to the past is a problem and that Kent is like stuck in the past in a way that's like embarrassing or bad doesn't really take into account the specific circumstances of their separation. Obviously, Jack's OD was traumatic for Jack, but I, as we've discussed before, like it was probably also traumatic in a different way for his teenage boyfriend who he suddenly stopped talking to afterwards. Like that's pretty traumatic. And when things are really traumatic or upsetting, like no matter how brief an event might be, especially if you're trying to process them presumably without therapy in an environment like the NHL, which is not what I would call like emotionally nurturing, it it makes sense that the impact of that emotional circumstance would linger. Jack got to go to rehab and go to Samwell and like have all these different experiences where maybe processing that stuff was a priority. For Kent, that's not so much the case. So it it would make sense if he's in a different place with processing what happened than, than Jack is. I don't know. I just think that this take is like kind of bonkers. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is maybe 419 is a better place to sort of like dig into the meat of this specifically. But the idea that like a trauma that happened six years ago need not be resolved merely because it happened six years ago is not great. 
as like a take. It's at least not super thoughtful about the way that people tend to deal with trauma. I will say most people, most people. Yeah. And it's also like humans process things, humans grieve. And I'm sure that's a bit of like what Kent has been going through in very different ways, in various modes. And it's possible that because Jack has been avoiding him, part of what Kent is here to do in these strips is like get some kind of resolution. Like, is he going to come to Vegas with me and this is going to turn into something else or this is the end of the road? Like, this may be part of his process. Yeah, and also it's not linear. Like, I think I think the emotional progressions in Check, Please are hugely linear, right? You come out, you self-actualize, you grow up, you're good. Now you have a book deal. Everything's great. And that's cool, but that's not, in my experience, how most people really are. And when you read a sports novel or when you read a romance novel, like, yes, usually the emotional trajectories are very linear. You fall in love and okay, then you're in love or you win the game or you lose the game, you know, you train and then whatever. Like, yes, the the tropes are pretty linear, but because this is kind of engaging outside of the tropes at this point, like this is a more complicated take, at least in these couple of strips of sort of like the jilted ex-lover or whatever than you might get in your typical romance novel. So I don't think we can use that linear strategy to approach it. And it just doesn't make sense to apply the same linear logic, I don't think, to this circumstance. Although clearly that's what's happening. Who is Kent Parson? Is he a jerk? Is he actually as nice as Shitty and Biddy suggest? Why does Jack get so tense around him? Why is their relationship so strained? Is it just because of Jack's jealousy? Is it something Jack did? Is it something Parse did? Why does he keep trying to talk to Jack? What does Parse want? And how does this affect Eric Richard Biddle? Kent, baby one more time, Parson. I've been saying it from day one, folks. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I will suggest that these are not questions you ask about a character that you don't want your readers to speculate about and care about. And secondly, none of these questions ever get answered except the last one. Oh, yeah. And the answer is, like, it doesn't. It, it doesn't affect Biddy at all. Yeah. Also, the baby one more time thing. Um, that is a reference to the Britney Spears song, Baby One More Time, which is not that deep a work. Although, you know, hashtag free Britney. It's basically just like, how was I supposed to know that something wasn't right? I'd like to get you back, basically. And that's what's going on with Kent Parson here. That said, that in and of itself is not an answer to any of these questions. Like, to some extent, it has nothing to do with with this. It gives a little insight into his motivation and speaks to the fact that they were in some capacity together in the past. And that can sort of, like, imply answers to some of the questions. But... No, it doesn't. This is also like perfect fanfic fodder. And I'll remind you that after the next strip, she goes on hiatus for a while. So like people are seething, seething with this new information about Kent Parson and then all of the implied information of these questions, you know? Britney Spears is also, well, as, as, a, as a human being, I, I have no reason to think that she is, but as like 
an aesthetic, Britney Spears is also pretty gay. So I think leaning on, leaning on like a pretty hard implication here about Kent Parson. Yeah, agreed. Speaking of, wait a minute, wait, what was that purse sitting in Jack's lap? Well, where else would he sit? This I'm not as concerned about. I mean, where would he sit? It's a good question. On the floor. Not when there's a lap available. Anyway, listen, we talked a little bit about this when we talked about the picture of it in Parse 2. That's all. It's pretty gay. The end. (laughs) Is the only difference between now Jack and QMJHL Jack just his haircut? The secret to drawing a younger Jack is making him smile. The end. Ha ha ha. Now we're all sad. Well, that's nice. I also like the low-key implication that Parse can make him smile, but maybe Biddy can't? Question mark? Yeah, but what does that fucking mean? Like, I thought Jack was happier now that he was at Samwell and, and so on and so forth. Like, but, the, but it's like, this is so confusing. How are you supposed to interpret this? Like, the implication is that Jack is sad now. I don't know. Jack has seemed sad the whole time. <laughs> he just... Every picture of Jack, there's like a frisson of anxiety happening. So I, I don't know, man. I don't know. Okay. Who were those girls Ransom and Holster were trying to wheel? March and April. March is 5'11". I sure hope they turn up in later comics. Spoiler, they do not. Okay, here's a big one. What color are Ken Parsons' eyes? They change color like the anime trash he is. Okay. What? (laughs) Why? Why? Why this? Why this character? Why does he have color-changing eyes? I am delighted about this fact about Kent Parson, as I think many of us are. They do change color. Ngozi will color them differently depending on what, you know, his surroundings look like and where he is and who she may want him to parallel in any given scene, I would argue. All I can really say is that a character who doesn't matter doesn't usually get magic color changing eyes. Like, in fact, it is a classic of romance, fantasy, sports novels, maybe less eye color is noticed than in other kinds of genres, but maybe not, I don't know, you know, whatever. It is a classic that a character who is important or sort of magical or, or sort of like uh, attention getting in some way has, you know, purple eyes or like color changing eyes. So all I can imagine is that Ken Parson is a magical girl actually, and uh, just needs to go through his full transformation. And then at last, part three. I made a list of these a while ago, and I guess we'll sort of like go go through them. Number one, Kent, second best flip cup player at Samwell University, Parson. So I guess like after Lardo, because Lardo beat him. Yeah. Number two, Kent, you may not know who I am, but you'll want a selfie with me, Parson. So I guess what we learned from this is that he, like, exudes charisma. Like, he's someone who attracts people regardless of his hockey talent. Like, minus his skill, which is immense. He's just someone you want to be around. And then Kent, sweetie, swooty person. Kent looks at Jack and says, ha, do he got booty? Oh, God, he has too much booty. Abort, abort, person. So with these two, uh, Jack has a big butt and Kent is into it. That's their dynamic. This is very important for previous butt-related reasons discussed on this podcast. (laughs) Or behinds, as I would call them, if I were writing a fill on a kink meme. Oh, well, you know, I would bet that Biddy calls Jack's butt his behind sometimes. 
seems in character. I believe move, it. Move, move your big behind out of my kitchen. Or like, yeah, whatever. Exactly. Um, uh, okay. Kent, hashtag housewrecker Parson. I think that it's to friend of the comic 20-something wrote a tweet saying hashtag housewrecker with house spelled H-A-U-S trend already or something like that. Yeah, so this is obviously a take on the concept of a home wrecker, which is somebody who breaks up a marriage. So I wonder if this was maybe adding a little bit of fuel to the fire of both like Biddy Parse and Jack Parse, because it kind of like implies that like Kent is going to get between this couple somehow. I remember the dynamics that Kent would get between Jack and Biddy somehow, but I don't remember it becoming like a ship war until later. But that could have just been my circle of fandom. And I wasn't I wasn't into fanfic yet really for the comic, so I could have a limited perspective. I'm less confident that this was going to be part of the plot. Like I'm absolutely confident that Parse is going to have a bigger role. I don't know if it was necessarily going to be like a bona fide romantic rivalry. Although I do think that maybe like a longer and more drawn out ship tease might have helped this character a lot more. Having said that, you can certainly understand why, just in the context of this one series of strips, followed by the next strip and then a long hiatus, people would hypothesize that maybe that's what's going to happen. Like there's a year in our world from February 2015 to February 2016 between these strips being posted and Jack and Biddy getting together. So yeah, I I mean, you'd maybe see a lot of space for people to theorize. And I, I feel like this house record thing. Yeah, I mean, it's like, what else would that be implying? And then finally, Kent has dreams about Jack Zimmerman, which are bookmarks in a detailed catalog of ways to make Jack question his self-worth parson. Um, This is not an articulate statement. So some people read this as like implying an intention on Kent's part to make Jack feel bad. And... I, I guess that's possible, but I also think, like, given some other extras about, like, just the fact that, like, Kent is alive and succeeding with or without intention makes Jack feel bad, I feel like perhaps it's more about how Jack feels than about how Kent feels or acts. Yeah, I agree, and I also think that given the context of their relationship and the way the argument works... A detailed catalog of ways to make Jack question his self-worth could very easily just be like, you are gay. <laughs> like, as implied by Ken's question, you know, are you afraid I'll tell them something about you? So I don't actually know that. Oh, and by the way, I'm fully assuming that, yes, Ken Parson has like gay dreams about Jack Zimmerman on the rig. That's obviously part of my understanding of this. But I don't know, especially given our discussion about whether he's actually like making the assertion that Jack is worthless, which neither of us think that he is in the comic. I don't really read this as necessarily maybe an intention, but certainly not like a dastardly plot to make Jack 
feel a particular way. It's hard for me to read it that way. I read it more as like they have this spiky history and it hurts both of them. This just like is not a well-written statement. It's like occlusive on purpose and that's a charitable reading. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Like, I feel like people spend so long poring over, like, these blog posts or, like, phraseology relating to this comic, and a lot of the time I think that's fueled by the fact that it's just not well-phrased. And so maybe it seems like it means something, but it's actually just, like, badly written. I think this is well-phrased for the purpose that I think it is serving, which is not to confirm anything and is not to add detail to the characters, but to get fans very excited and I think for that reason this has a very particular cadence to it which is very fanficy to me like I don't know there's something about saying the way that Ngozi has written this that feels very like designed to get sort of like what's the phrase like there's chum in the water and people get ex- and like fish <laughs> whatever do you know what I'm saying it feels like that this phrase feels like chum in the water both because I think it is not written in a clear manner and also because I feel like you know people are the sharks are circling That's why Chowder is happy. Okay, anyway. So, Parse is a dick? Okay, but was all that stuff shitty said true then? Were Jack's previous reactions a response to the way Parse had treated him before? Or is Jack actually insecure and jealous? Does Parse know about Jack's anxiety? Does Parse miss Jack? Does Jack miss Parse? Is there still something there? These are all good questions. So again, this is the kind of metatextual BS that makes readers assume any of these questions will ever be answered, which none of them ever are, with the possible exception of the last couple if you take Jack's answers in 3.7, which is LVA at PD part one at face value. So actually, I'd never thought about this, but what, does does Parse make Jack, like, yes, yes, like, he he says it multiple times. It's very plain that yes, he does. Well, but secret, he always says that. And what if he's a manipulative asshole and he doesn't really miss him? Have you considered that angle? Why would he show up at the school? Because he's a dastardly mastermind who wants to use his sociopathic tendencies to make Jack feel bad to get him back for hurting him six years ago because he can't get over something he should get over, obviously. Yeah, so then I feel like... The implication of this series of questions and also the series of questions in the previous blog post is basically about like viewpoint within the narrative. For example, like these questions aren't easy to pull apart because the situation is complicated and some of how you would answer the questions depends on who you ask or where you're positioned. And it sets up an expectation that this will be part of like the themes introduced via Kent Parson. But... Yeah, that doesn't play out. That That's never resolved. So instead, we just have these like leading questions, but where they lead to is uh, nowhere. Fanfic. Yeah, that's right. That's it. Kenny? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. You know, when it's the last summer of your childhood and you're just hanging out with your bro and you're smoothing out his cowlick and... You fondly call him Kenny while trying to think about how mercilessly cruel fate is. LOL, you know, bros being bros. Uh, So this is Jack's point of view. It sure is. Yeah. So then what do we get from this? And my main takeaway from these three strips together is that like Jack is 
fatalistic about his stuff with Kent. Like his attitude seems to be, well, it just has to be like this. And alternately, or perhaps concurrently, Jack is actually very fond of Kent. And like the other paratechs or the other extras that we see about them in this time evoke like the same affect where, oh, it's very soft, deeply meaningful, but also like tentative. It's like this very sort of watercolor, like masculine sweetness or something. And then it all sort of like creeps into fic and art about them where it's all very like gestural, like, you know, oh, like softly petting somebody's hair wistfully while sighing. It's very Edwardian, if you think about it. Waistcoats for everybody. Uh, Yeah, it is really Edwardian. And not to beat a dead horse again, because the horse doesn't deserve it, but I don't think we would be set up to like Kent through descriptions like this if we weren't supposed to care about the character at some capacity. Whether we were supposed to maintain our care for him and then he turned into a villain, or whether there was some other plan for him, I just don't think that we would get this tender gaze through which to understand Kent unless we were supposed to have some kind of positive feeling towards him. Even as, right, because remember, this is the same strip that the argument happens in. Even as the argument happens, we're getting a counterpoint through which to like Kent. And I think that's really purposeful. And I think that's part of the job paratextual stuff is doing here is to give us an avenue to still like Kent even as he does something which is not necessarily, you know, ideal behavior. That obviously didn't work for everybody and we can talk about that forever, but that's what I think that this is doing. This is setting us up to have a particular image of Kent in our heads and that eventually leads to, you know, the ghost of Kent. This ghost of, I feel like this guy, this young guy with the cowlick who wants to eat chicken tenders with Jack, like is kind of the ghost, you know? We were supposed to find out more about him and we never do. Well, yeah, I mean, all of these series of questions of like, is Kent actually an asshole? Did Jack do something to provoke this behavior? Or vice versa, of course. But like, I think you're supposed to be left with the question of like, what is actually the undercurrent going on in conversation with what we see in this trip? Like, I do not think it is supposed to be the text speaks for itself. The text is supposed to speak with the paratexts. And the paratexts are leading you to question what the meaning of what you're seeing is. And I know I keep going on about paratexts, like, throughout our whole podcast, but the blog posts are literally shaping how you're supposed to read the comic strips they're associated with, and concurrently, how Kent Parson is being received in the text. So, like, you're not just seeing what Kent does, you're also seeing all of this background information and what you're perceiving is that the author is constructing him a certain way. So paratexts are really important. And especially in this comic, where so much of what we know about this character and so much of like how he's received is based upon not merely what's in the text, but the interplay between the text and like their associated blog posts. Yeah, exactly. And the the social or parasocial relationship between Gozi and her fans 
and the kind of associated importance of the paratexts. Not every comic has this relationship between creator and fans. Not every comic has this relationship between update posts and the content. In fact, like often there is not. Um, I've read a lot of webcomics and in my experience, webcomic posts do not have this level of like micro reading instruction in them, at least not in the comics I've read. And there's something kind of inescapable about the way the fandom popped up around the comic and the way that there was like a particular friend question mark relationship between fans and Ngozi and then the impact of these blog posts. Because the blog posts were a way of interacting with your like parasocial friend. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I don't know how much steam I have to cover this too in-depth, but as some listeners may know, I have been effectively, like, curating a project about the collective memory around Kent Parson. And for me, the concept of collective memory is the way that I get to reading sort of, like, the specter of Kent Parson within Check Please, both as a text and as a fandom. And I think it's interesting that I came at this collective memory project from like a different piece of theory from a different discipline than Tomato. And the point that it led both of us to is effectively this sort of ghostly spectral role that Kent plays. He's lodged in the sort of like shared memory of everybody who has been involved in Check Please fandom. Every time you read a comic strip and he's not in it, the meaning of the comic strip is at least partly, even if you're not conscious of it, about the fact that Kent Parson has not been reintroduced. And I know a lot of people would reject that, but I think it's functionally true. Collective memory is something that I could talk about for hours, but to save us all the trouble, what I'll basically say is that who Kent Parson is, going back to the question at the top of the post, and like what he is in relationship to Check Please as a general discourse or a discursive formation, is not merely a single character or a single perception of a character. It's the combined shared perception of him, which is simultaneously particular and unique to every reader, and yet also as a whole across the entire readership, a single entity. And the negotiation of these two things and the tension between those two things is where we start to see a lot of discourse emerging. It's also, I think, pretty important to note that the meaning of Kent Parson is not like a single thing. It's something that is effectively layered into the fandom because the first generation of fans who were reading the comic and producing fan works at the time when these, these strips were first posting, basically generated knowledge 
about Kent Parson that then like genetically passed down from generation of fans to generation of fans as successive waves of people came into the fandom and left the fandom. And so the meaning and the weight of Kent Parson is not merely a single thing. It's the layered meanings that different people have developed through fan works, through paratexts, through meta posts, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not gonna name any specific theorists or whatever, just because I think this is like a really basic concept. I think it's one of like many theoretical concepts that like makes a lot of sense when you think about it. So that's where I'm at with this guy. It's like the meaning of Kent Parson is not a single thing. It is a collective thing. Who he is and what he represents is not just like what he literally does in the comic or what Ngozi literally says he is. He's the collected weight of every view of him, every fan work about him, every paratext about him, the way that information and feelings about him have been passed from like fan to fan over six years. And maybe that's a good point to sort of segue whenever we pick this up into the wink of Kent Parson or whatever. A topic Jack Zimmerman also thinks about despite himself on the reg. <sighs> yeah, yeah, yep. What are we looking at next time? Uh, you know, it's not written down, but off the top of my head, I believe we'll be starting semester two with 2.10 Shinny. Encyclopedic memory of Check Please episodes came to the rescue. Oh God, yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, oh, sorry. <laughs> Who are you? I'm Secret, and you can find me on Tumblr at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, or S-K-R-T-O-M-G. Also, on AO3, I'm Familiar. And I'm Tomato, and you can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. And you can also find us... Sorry, I forgot where I was going. You can find us at checkdisplease.tumblr.com on Podbean and on Spotify. And that's it. Thanks. Yeah, it's been a weird couple weeks, you guys. Some weird stuff going on. Just everything's weird. Don't forget to please donate your time and money to the Georgia runoffs. Okay, goodbye. Check This Pleased is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahangan. That was very legit.